0: This is the BBC.
1: This podcast is supported by advertising outside the UK.
0: In a digital world that demands your attention, it can be challenging
2: to build your own worldview. The Financial Times brings you rigorous and independent global journalism, so you can see more angles and find time to think for yourself. Don't jump to conclusions. Read to them instead. Fearlessly Pink. Financial Times. Read more at ft.com slash fearless.
0: Across Northern Ireland, on your radio and on BBC Sounds, this is
3: The Stephen Nolan Show.
4: Hello there, we really appreciate you downloading this podcast from the BBC and don't forget, we're here fighting for you every day of the week if you want to contact us, nolan at bbc.co.uk. I hope you enjoy today's podcast.
1: The Stephen nolan Show.
4: There's a lot of big picture politics around and we will look at the DUP story uh, shortly. But The Nolan Show is never afraid to lead with a story empowering an individual within our community to have a voice. James has cerebral palsy, but that does not mean he does not have an opinion. His mother has told The Nolan Show the Southern Trust removed the power from his electric wheelchair without properly consulting with him. James was 17 years of age when it happened to him and he's now 18. He was taking seizures, and the Southern Trust clearly had legitimate concerns for his safety. But this is a story at the top of our show this morning of both how he and his mother feel a decision has been taken over their heads. The Southern Trust are claiming they cannot speak publicly about the case because of confidentiality, but that does not mean they are not accountable. To what extent did they consult with a 17-year-old when they were significantly affecting his ability to move around like most of us can? They won't answer the question. Did they talk to him? They won't answer the question. Did they take his opinions on board? They won't answer the question. Now, James may have cerebral palsy, but his own opinion is that he needs his electric wheelchair back and he wants the Southern Trust to engage more with him. The Nolan Show will fight for James to have questions answered about his life and that's what we're doing this morning. His ability to move around, according to his mum, has now been severely affected by this decision. Did they really do this, the trust? They had legitimate concerns. Of course they did because this young man was taking seizures. But did they really do this without thorough consultation with a person whose life was affected? Surely not. Sarah has been telling me her son's story.
1: An ongoing issue regarding my son, James. James is 18 years old. He has cerebral palsy, is a wheelchair user, and in April 2023, he was diagnosed with epilepsy. Um, He had a few seizures in April, um, was then put on medication. He had an isolated incident in June and then was seizure-free until September, and then he had what is called a cluster of seizures. Um, and after that the OTs made a decision to remove the power from James's powered wheelchair which
5: means um,
1: they said that he was possibly you know it was possibly a danger to himself and to other people in case he was to take a seizure and possibly you know drive into someone um, and cause himself any injury or someone else
4: and did you agree with that decision Sarah?
1: no no, um, I was in work when I got the email to say that, you know, it, it was a really difficult decision to make, and that they understand the repercussions of it. But um, they felt like they had no choice, um, and they have, you know, policy to follow, I suppose, um, which I totally understood. But it was made very soon after his seizures, and to me, it should have maybe been left for a wee while. To- to, you know, for his seizures to be monitored to see if they would improve, you know, over the next week or two. But to remove the power completely um, was something that I did not agree with. Uh, James has a controller at the front of the chair, and there's one at the back for someone to use um, when needed. And James, if asked, would have just not used the power while in school, you know, until his seizures were monitored to make sure that he was okay um, and to me, that should have been done. That should have been the first thing in the risk assessment. You know, maybe ask James not to use his power while in school or in busy areas and let it be um, controlled from the back.
4: Was your, could your son have been consulted? You say he's 18. Could he have been consulted?
1: Absolutely. Um, I don't think that he was considered or that he was included much in the risk assessment. Well, why not? Um, I, I, I don't know. I think that the ladies you know, I understand that the trust have a duty of care, absolutely, and that something maybe needed done. But I just think that the decision was a wee bit extreme, See, considering James has been seizure free now for six months.
4: So obviously, I'm I'm not a, an expert, and, and they are. But I, I remember yeah. I remember many many years ago, and, and her name was Jean Faulkner. And Jean, Jean I visited, there was a plan by government to close a, a, a whole suite of old people's homes. And Jean had been a resident in that old people's home. Um, and I remember going down and visiting her. And the question I asked Jean as, he, as she sat there as an elderly lady, and all of these experts had talked about the, 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 the fors and against old people uh, having their home closed and what would benefit them and all of that, and I looked at Jean and I said, have you been consulted? Has someone discussed, not with your family, but with you? And she said, no. And and that's and, and why I'm asking this question, but your son, he's 18. He's an adult. Yeah. He has a disability, yeah. but how much was he consulted when they wanted to change his chair? That's why That's why I'm asking that question. Yeah,
1: I, I, don't, I did ask him if he was... Um, consulted as part of the risk assessment and he said no. Now James was 17 at the time, he was—he turned 18 in October, he was 17 at the time but still, you know, a intelligent young man who should have been included in that risk assessment and to be honest I just think that they should have asked him you know, James, what are you comfortable with? Because James wouldn't have been given the control of a power wheelchair if he didn't know how to use it and wasn't aware of his situation and his surroundings so I do think that the first thing that should have been done was maybe to ask James, you know, what are you comfortable with? And he probably would have agreed to not use his power while in school or while out and about um, but still have it for use at home because this is a young man who's 18 years of age this is his only independence this is the only thing that he can do for himself without assistance and it's been taken away from him and like I so said, what's been, you the, know, what's under- been
4: the impact on, on him and his life?
1: Um, well, his independence—the only thing that he has had—his independence has been taken away from him. It's a total breach of his human rights, and I hate using the term mental health, but James has been under a severe amount of stress because of this. And James has a lot of physical issues going on, and he takes everything with a pinch of salt. He's a really happy young man. But this has caused him so much frustration and so much stress, so much so that I have girls who come in from the Trust who um, come in and help me get him up in the mornings and he has a really good relationship with them. And they came in and told me that they've never seen James upset before. So they're even concerned about the effect that this is having on him. And I think it's just that when the risk assessment was done, They've kind of just reprogrammed the chair to make it that he can't use it anymore. There's no timeline in place for when he's getting it back. I mean, in the email, when they initially told me that they were going to remove the power, they said that it would be reviewed once he saw his neurologist. We saw his neurologist on the 21st of November, and she was happy that his seizures are now managed with the new medication. And I've written two formal complaint letters you know, Sam, why is James not getting the power back on his chair, and they just keep on responding with, you know, no resolution really, and they just want to meet to chat with me. But I don't need any more chat. They didn't need to talk to me to remove the power from his chair, so they don't need my permission to put it back on again.
4: So you can't get an answer about your son. Your son can't no. get an answer. It's clearly affecting his mental health. Yeah. Um.
1: And- Stress is a trigger for epilepsy, for seizures as well.
4: You're worried about them, really You're worried about them. Yeah, the
1: um, I think that, the, you know, the, the biggest issue that I have is that there's no protocol in place, you know, for James or for any other service user that if he has another seizure, is his power going to be removed again for another six months?
4: well let 's look at what the Southern Trusts are saying. They say our occupational therapy team works with each service user individually to assess and advise on their specific wheelchair needs well from sure. what From what you 're saying this morning, there are questions about how closely they work with the individual because you 're suggesting that your son wasn 't properly consulted. Clearly yep. clearly, they're disputing that in in this statement, so let's dig into that. They then mm-hmm. say in their statement, while we aim to promote independence and choice with electric power wheelchairs, when operating this vehicle type, the safety of our service users and others must always be prioritized, and any recommendation will be based on a risk assessment. Have you mm-hmm. seen the, have you seen the risk assessment? no, why not? has your son um, seen it
1: James Whenever I was asking James if there was a risk assessment done, he told me that it was done in November and I was unaware of this. He knew that it was happening because he was told and I asked him if he was consulted about it and he said no and I haven't seen the risk assessment either.
4: With, with, your, um, with your son's disabilities that he has, what, what mental capacity does he have? To, to to make decisions for himself?
1: Yeah, he's, he makes a lot of his decisions himself. And he... Like, when we're out and about, there are certain situations that we go into. Like, if it's a crowded area, and I'll say, James, look, I'll just take control of the chair. Is that all right? And he would say, yeah. So I press the button at the back. I control the chair while we're out and about to make sure, you know, he doesn't drive into anyone or drive over anyone's toe. And he's, he's grand with that. And to me... It's an insult to James's intelligence that they didn't, you know, just say to him first before reprogramming the chair. Just ask James, would you mind not using your chair while in school to make sure that you see, you're safe and everyone else is safe? He would have said, no problem.
4: You see, it's not how this is being uh, characterised in the statement from the Southern Trust. Um, they they, 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 they they say in a statement, we understand the removal of an electric power wheelchair will be difficult for any service user, but it will only be made with careful consideration. Cases like this are kept under close review, along with our medical colleagues and in line with the service users changing needs. And then they say, yeah. while we cannot comment on the individual circumstances of any service user, we continue to work directly with this family to address their concerns, do you feel they have been working directly with you? And the inference there is that they're, they're that, that they're in, in communication with you, and that they're, they're 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 making sure that they're listening to you. Is that what's been happening?
1: Um, not really, because really, all we want as James wants, is a timeline when he's getting his power back all we've wanted is a resolution to this issue and they're not giving me one in the initial email that they sent to me they said that the situation would be reviewed once James saw, you know once he had an up to date neurology appointment, he had that appointment on the 21st of November his neurologist was happy with him so 21st of November? 21st of November yeah.
4: That's when an assessment's been done?
1: that's That's when he saw his Consultant, and she was happy that his seizures are now manageable. And I asked her on that day, you know, would you let OT know um, that you're happy with James? And then after that, I was keen to get in touch with OT, and I said, you know, we, we've had the neurology appointment. You know, can James have the power back in his chair? But the, the last message that I received from OT was that they're still gathering information. From who? On seizures and wheelchairs.
4: So has the consultant fed back to OT?
1: Um, so I asked for the doctor's notes and unfortunately she just said James's mum has shown concern that he has no power of his wheelchair. Um, and apparently we would have needed for her to say I'm happy for James to have the power restored. So what his has wheelchair. the
4: consultant said?
1: Uh, She just said that she was... Like, whenever James and I met her... What
4: what has she said in writing?
1: In writing, she just said James's mum has expressed concern that he doesn't have the power of his wager.
4: So the consultant did not say that he should have the power back?
1: Yeah, so that's what we would have needed to have in writing, but he's been seizure-free for six months now, so he hasn't had any seizures since September. So surely that should be one of the main... Reasons for him to have his power restored, like for a for a driver, they need to be like with on a car. They need to be seizure free for a year to have their license back. But with a powered wheelchair and a mobility scooter and the like, they don't require a license. So there is no, it doesn't fall under the same legislation as a car. But we're approaching seven months now that James has been without power of a wheelchair that goes five miles an hour. He is.
4: They're categorised Consta- as a Class 2 motorised vehicle. Yeah, people. like
1: he's constantly with someone. He's never unsupervised. He's never near traffic. He's never on a main road. He goes to school and home again. And they have, you know, made a decision which I feel is unnecessary, which James see, feels is unnecessary for him and any other service user. You see, there might be,
4: right? They're, they're the specialists. They're the experts. Yeah. there There might be despite you arguing and, and your son arguing that there that there isn't there might be a legitimate reason um for the par uh, to, to for, for your son not to have an electric wheelchair at this time there might be this story is about communication this story is about recognizing your son as a human being understanding how down how frustrated he is about this communicating with him as a person with a disability, him feeling that he's listened to, as well as you, his mother, feeling that you're listened to. That's what this story's also about. And they're telling you in a letter they'll get back to you in 20 days time?
1: Yes. Which is another four weeks. And considering this is the third response to emails that I have sent, it's just not good enough.
4: Well, here's what we can do for you at the BBC from The Nolan Show, okay? we can hold this trust to account to their own words. So they are saying that their decisions have only been made, quote, with careful consideration. So what we will do is we will work with you and help advise you uh, as to how to get all of the notes about your son. In fact, now that your son's an adult, maybe he should ask for them himself.
2: Mm-hmm. So let's,
4: let's let's get the information. What careful consideration has the Southern Trust done? If they're publicly saying it, then let's see what careful consideration they've done. Let's see what notes they've taken as to when they've spoken to your son about what they were doing with his wheelchair. Let's see where the impact assessment has been to consider the impact on your son's mental health graded against the dangers of your son having this electric wheelchair. Let's see how mm-hmm. often they've talked about it. Let's see at what level they've talked about it. Let's see why it'll take, despite you telling them that that there are, there are grave concerns now for your son's mental health, let's see why it has to take 20 days for you to get another response. And we promise yeah. you we'll be right in behind doing that for you. Yeah, thank you. Listen, thank you very much. We'll stay with the story. We'll team up with you. We'll get you and your son answers. Thanks, Stephen. Thanks a lot. Well, as promised, we did go to the Southern Trust. They, they're holding to their position that um, they will not be saying anything more publicly um, because of the, indiv- uh, about the individual circumstances of the service user. Um, they are saying that their staff are continuing to engage with Jim and uh, his mother on this a- a- issue. So we will um, we will make sure that we stay in touch with, uh, with mum and James, um, and and let's just see how often the trust are actually uh, engaging with James and his mother. That's a young man who is 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 crying out really uh, for not just his independence. And look, if there are dangers around his wheelchair, and clearly there are, that's why the trust is doing this. But how much is his mental health being considered? And how much communication, given that, is there with him? He is 18. He's a man. He's an adult. He's disabled, but he is entitled to regular communication. And let's see how much of it is actually going on. Grace and Banbridge. Morning, Grace. Hello. Good morning, Grace. Go ahead. Thank you for calling us.
1: Yes, well, my late husband, whenever he started taking seizures many years ago, Uh, He had uh, his driving licence and he didn't get his driving licence back. Of course he started on medication, but he had about a complete year free from seizures before he got his driving licence back. And I wonder if maybe that's the same sort of thing with the motorised wheelchair. It's for for the person's own safety. I just wonder... Uh, you know, if there uh, has to be a certain length of time before they have to be completely seizure-free.
4: But that, that, that at the heart of that young man's story is he doesn't know how long he's going to be left like this.
1: Yes, well, my husband didn't know how long he was going to be without a licence yeah.
4: because
1: he didn't know when he was going to take another seizure. It's like a chicken and an egg situation.
4: Absolutely. Well, Grace, we'll stay across the story. Thank you very much indeed. Morning to you, Zero thirty thirty eighty. 80. Fifty-five, fifty-five. that young man's been, James, has been uh, clear of seizures for six months. We'll stay across the story. 25 past nine. Last night, Lord Nigel Dodds hit out at the deal that Sir Geoffrey Donaldson did, describing the language supporting it as propaganda. Speaking in the House of Lords last night, Nigel rubbished what he described as the
6: reassurance package over the Irish Sea border. I come today, today's debate with such a sense of concern. Because, my Lord, the humble address before your Lordship's house today is part of the reassurance package, if you would call it that, promised by the government to unionists in the deal, uh, the command order 1021. It's set out there that this would be the mechanism used to provide reassurance. But the reality is that the deal the command paper 1021 still retains the protocol Windsor framework with all its inherent anti-unionist contents and this is where the words collide with reality where propaganda collides with the facts and there's nothing in this humble address which actually changes anything in relation to Northern Ireland or which undoes the damage Done to our constitutional position as part of the United Kingdom by the protocol.
4: And the Lord McRae, also from the DUP, told peers uh, in, in, in the Lords that the DUP would be foolish to accept more promises or what he described as empty rhetoric from the British government. But the DUP's Lord Hay last night then defended Sir Geoffrey. Leadership's about making
7: the difficult decisions. The difficult decisions. We all can stand on the sideline and make the easy decisions. But then, when you're in the heat of the kitchen, you have to make the decision. And I believe my party leader and my party was right to make the decision that they made to get back into the Assembly, work the Assembly, but it's work that is not finished. Not finished. It is continuing work with this government and keeping their feet to the fire on all of the issues tonight that has been mentioned. Well, the... Belfast
4: Telegraph is uh, writing extensively about this uh, today. Sam McBride from the Belfast Telegraph uh, with us this morning. Sam, what's happening within that party?
8: Well, it's clearly not united on this issue. We've known that for some time. But what is significant about this is that these people who are unhappy are not getting quieter with time. They're getting more and more vociferous about this. Now, And um, if you if you listen to what Lord Dodd said last night, if you listen to what Sammy Wilson said in the in the House of Commons the previous evening, um there are not full frontal attacks on Jeffrey Donaldson. they they're 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 not coming out and attacking him by name, they're not pointing at him, but by implication they're saying his deal is nowhere near what he claims it to be, that he's misrepresenting it, that he's claiming it sweeps away the Irish Sea border when it obviously doesn't. Now, that becomes problematic for the DUP if it continues. Yes, Geoffrey Donaldson has got most of his Stormont party on board with this. He's got a lot of his membership on board with this. If if the polling which we've had is accurate, it was about 72% of, of, of people who vote for the DUP were, were backing this in the early days of the deal. Um, but even then that was about 25% of party supporters against it from the outset, if you're in the DUP, you were hoping that they would come on board over time, that if you get close to an election, the big tribal drum will be beaten very hard and those people will say, you know what, we'll try to keep out Sinn Féin, we'll come back. That's harder to do if the party itself is not united on this. And if Geoffrey Donaldson is seen to be somebody within unionism who is attacking other unionists, that's not going down well with some of these people. So it's a very difficult balancing act for the DUP leader at the moment. So, Sir Geoffrey Donaldson, as
4: recently as as Monday night, Sam, was talking up this, this agreement. Let's have a listen.
9: In our seven tests, we talked about fulfilling the Acts of Union, whilst others who hadn't bothered to read the original acts of union, who didn't know what they were talking about, who seek to rewrite history, who declare themselves as the champions of unionism, but don't know their facts, talked about restoring something that would
6: mean customs checks on goods maybe between Northern Ireland and Great Britain, would mean tariffs on goods uh, manufactured in Northern Ireland being sold in Great Britain. This
9: is the kind of nonsense that our detractors daily pump out They should check their facts, know their history and understand what they're talking about, Mr Deputy Speaker.
4: Sammy Wilson cited a businessman who told him the paperwork to get Northern Ireland goods. This is Sammy Wilson, same party of course, uh, cited a businessman who told him the paperwork to get Northern Ireland goods through the red lane is actually going to get worse. I spoke with a businessman this morning who informed me that uh, the last order he got and he says it's going to get worse. The last order he got, goods coming through the Red Lane, the paperwork for that took six hours. And he said, you know, when you're working on, on, on um, uh, very thin margins, that additional work makes you then ask, do you want to invest further in Northern Ireland or do you simply jump over the border and go into the Irish Republic? Sam, which side, which part of the DUP should the public believe?
8: Well, that's that's a that's a that's a matter for the public to um, make their minds up on. I mean, look, people people will look at this. People who are who are in any way inclined to vote for the D.P. will look at this and they will have two views. Some of them will say, um, "Yes, they absolutely sign up to what Jeffrey Donaldson says; they're happy with it." Um, or maybe they don't quite sign up to what he claims about it sweeping away the sea border, but they want to get back into Stormont. They think that's better for them. It's better for their families. Better for their neighbours. Better for the union. Better for what, 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 whatever element of those things is most important to them. They think that's worth doing. And then there's other people who say, "Look, you're just not being straight about this. You claim that." you wouldn't go back in if these things didn't happen and they simply haven't happened and we're not going to go along with this and the really significant thing here is that when you've got people of the seniority of Nigel Dodds in the DUP, Coming out vocally against this and um, being willing to do that. His wife is, is is in Stormont, is an MLA. This is a man who is steeped in the DUP, who's been in it for far longer than Jeffrey Donaldson. And um, if he's coming out at this point, still weeks after this, with this level of vocal opposition, that shows that some of these people are not simply going to go along with this through gritted teeth. And that, I think, is the problem for Jeffrey Donaldson. And one, one of the other elements is that, Stephen, that, that clip that you played from Jeffrey Donaldson, where he was getting very exercised about people saying um, that, that, they, that this, this deal should have restored the Act of Union as it was in 18, 1800, 1801. Um, he, he, it's, it's, it's a very pedantic argument. But let me, let me try to explain why why that's significant. What he's trying to say is the people like Jim Allister um, who are saying that the active union ought to be put back, ought to be putting the clock back basically to where we were constitutionally in 1800 are stupid. He says they don't understand what they're talking about, they haven't read the law, they don't know their history and the reason for that is that he says look at that legislation, hidden in it were these tariffs on some Irish goods crossing the Irish Sea, things like Bushmills whiskey, you had to pay a tax on that, ultimately that was phased out but if you go right the way back to 1800 that's where things sat and he was deriding those people and saying look at how little they know about their history the awkward reality for jeffrey donaldson is that he doesn't know his history because 2 years ago he was literally saying what he is now condemning those people for having said so if you look at the dp's youtube channel they still have they, they 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 may have more than one but they certainly have at least one video of jeffrey donaldson standing in the same spot in the house of commons saying we need to restore the act of union not fulfill it which is his more more wider interpretation of this but go right the way back restore So this is somebody who as a political leader is struggling to get his own story straight and within his own party, even let alone people who don't like him, within his own party, not everybody agrees with what he's doing here.
4: This is a political leader who took a leadership decision brought his party back into the executive and now there is real discussion, real debate as to where funds should go. Um, he has real ministers, the likes of Gordon Lyons now with power, with authority and accountability to the, the, the public. Many people will admire the decision.
8: Absolutely. Um, many people in the DUP, many people outside the DUP. There's there's massive support for this from, from the wider community. And um, look, Stephen, I'm, I'm not, as your listeners know, somebody who has been in any way blind to the massive problems of not having a government. I've written about it. I've talked about it on your program. And it's, it's, it's been dreadful for people. People have died as a result of it. People have suffered as a result of it. Our our wider landscape has been trashed in some places because there's been indecision there. That that was a very valid thing for Jeffrey Donaldson to stand up and say, look, you know what? This has gone on long enough. It's time to get back in. What he didn't do was be straight with people that he was U-turning. He was abandoning what he had said. He was pretending the Irish Sea border had gone when it's simply a factual um, situation where it, it, it obviously demonstrably has not gone. There are border posts being built for goods that will come into Northern Ireland from Great Britain, will stay in Northern Ireland, will not go into the Republic. I mean, Let's let's have honesty about this. Let's have a mature debate about this rather than trying to pretend to people in the in, in the way that Boris Johnson or Brandon Lewis tried to pretend to people, look, there is no worry, Sea border, because that's basically being disingenuous in, in in trying to say to the public, you're not smart enough to understand this. And it's very complicated. Well, he's saying I find more work needs to be done. Which which is a very mixed message because if he's saying on the one hand, I've swept away this sea border, it doesn't exist anymore. What more work needs to be done? So even within his own um, his his own rhetoric on this, there is a clear inconsistency. But I think that if if he had come out, as some people in the DUP thought from the outset, people who wanted Stormont back, people who are not hardliners, people who really value devolution, they thought from the outset he should have just leveled with people and said, you know what? We have not got everything that we want. The border is not gone, but We need to get back in there. There are bigger issues here. We've got what we can. Let's bank it. Let's move on.
4: I guess finally, Sam... Got to go to the news, but the final question. Yes, we have these political heavyweights within the party. Sir Jeffrey Dulles is a political heavyweight. Obviously, he's the leader, as is Gavin Robinson, um, his deputy, and, and the others who who, who support Sir Jeffrey. But these other political heavyweights who are questioning what Sir Jeffrey has done and essentially saying, uh, you know, uh, Dodge used the word propaganda, and they're they're being very careful to level their criticism at the British government. But the deal is a deal that that, that Sir Jeffrey did with the British government. Um, but the bottom line is there is not anarchy within the DUP. There's not. There is there is no attempt to bring Sir Jeffrey down because of the decision. So where does this go next, or does it does it whimper out?
8: Yeah, look, that's that's a very important point to make here. We're not back to where we were with Edwin Poots leadership. This this is not like Liz Truss things can get an awful lot worse, um, and, and for now they haven't, so that's, that's a massive benefit for Jeffrey Donaldson here. I think the real concern for him is that over time, as people see more and more of what this means, it's very complicated, it will take a lot of time for a lot of this to be implemented, but when people start to see it, every time there is a check at the border, a piece of paper that somebody finds they have to do, a new law that that, that is put in place, and there's not very much that really can be done about it from Northern Ireland's perspective, that that just shows that what he said was incorrect. If he had been more judicious in what he said, he could have at each of those points said, look, I don't like this, it's not great, but it's better than what was there as as the alternative. And the problem for him is that these voices might become louder as that happens. But of course, there is the other possibility that there is this deep tribalism within Northern Ireland and that when we get to an election, people who like the DUP or at least are willing to vote for the DUP um, will hold their noses, they'll vote for them um, and they will do what they can to get rid of Michelle but O'Reilly when, but as, when it, as First Minister. But
4: when it comes to the election, for those people who are choosing to vote for the DUP, Are they voting for a party who supports an REC border at present? Are they voting for a party who supports checks at present? Or are they voting for a party who has got rid of them? That's why this question is important.
8: It is, but I think that it will have symbolic importance rather than practical importance at this point. Because the truth is that there is no realistic prospect of getting rid of the Irish Sea border at this point. That is the reality. Um, there might have been at some point, perhaps even that. It's very unlikely. It was always a very, very long shot. Whatever about that, it's completely gone now. Okay. And so, therefore, this is not something that, if you vote against the DUP as a as a as a possible DUP supporter, that is going to have that impact of getting rid of it, or even very significantly. Yeah softening and it, it would be it it would really be about you registering your displeasure with Jeffrey Donaldson. So it, do people care enough to do that? That's what we'll have to find out.
4: I'm just checking myself in my own brain. I think I phrased that wrong. They wouldn't be voting for a party. It's clear the DUP don't support an RC border. The question is are are people who vote it
8: rather than support it, accepting
4: yes. it. Are they are they voting for a party who has tolerated an RC border or a party who has got rid of it? Are they voting for a party who has got rid of checks? Um, or who tolerate them. Um, Sam, thank you very much indeed. 030, 30 80, 55, 55. Ryan, thanks for calling us. Ryan, good morning.
10: Hi Stephen. I um, just want to comment on one of the big stories you've been talking about there. Firstly, those that are standing in the, in the House of Lords get paid upwards of 330 or 350 quid a day on a lack official. So I don't think we should actually be listening to a lot of the nonsense these days. But the reason I am calling is I'm in my 30s. I'm of the Good Friday generation. And it's people like myself who are hardworking, have grown up through peace, want opportunities and are continually deprived of the opportunities because of the the, the sectarian tribal politics here. I work for one of the largest companies in the world. I work remotely out of of Northern Ireland in a well-paid job. And I can tell you for a fact that my company was wanting to open offices here to open up six-figure salary jobs. And they decided to pull out because of the shenanigans that goes on in politics. And it's an absolutely disgusting travesty that people of my generation and below are struggling to have well paid jobs, lack of infrastructure, lack of investment. Whenever we have politicians who never sacrifice their salary, don't have an issue with the cost of living. And it's just, I'm just, I'm, I'm beyond frustrated, Stephen, because it's just, it's the continual tribalism here that is doing the younger generations here. Out of so much opportunity, and
4: do you think now that the executive is restored, do you think that tribalism has gone?
10: Absolutely not. I'm, I look. I'm 35. It's been going on since I was a kid. <laughs> you know, it's not going to stop now. Particularly when you have older generations. You know, and that might be offensive to some. But until the older generations, the older dinosaurs die out, it's not going to be until the younger ones get an opportunity to come in and make the change. And that's the frustrating thing here. People are more concerned about an Irish Sea border. And, uh, you know, who gets what funding for X, Y, Z, community relations. Whenever you have people like myself who want to bring well-paying jobs to Northern Ireland, who want to bring opportunities to people, graduates, people, who well, you know, from, from low-skill backgrounds that want to upskill and up-level and continually, we're focusing on the wrong stuff. You think about the time and money that's been invested in debating over the naming of an Irish deep border or control checks, whenever you could be spending that money into infrastructure, lowering the local tax, threshold to bring multinational companies into Northern Ireland that will create wealth, generational wealth. For but people, well.
4: pe- people can have the entrepreneurial spirit that you can have. They, 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 they can have the, the, the desire to live in a, an inclusive community, like clearly you do, but they can still think that the constitutional status of their country and indeed how how goods can move within what they define as their country is also important. It's not binary one or the other, is it?
10: No, I I understand that, Stephen, but I also am also pragmatic, you know, and I I weigh up what is more important to me. Debating custom checks that, you know, in in reality, for those on the ground, nine-tenths of the population don't affect. Or it's something more important, like, for example, investment in jobs, infrastructure, creating a stronger economy, creating those opportunities, bringing communities together. I think that, to me, most people will weigh up and say that's more important than, you know, the tribalism. Why, why, Ryan,
4: why have you chosen to stay here and live here?
10: I didn't, Stephen. That's the thing. I actually moved away uh, many, many years ago. During COVID, I realised, you know what? I want to move home. I want to move back to be close to my family. Luckily, my company is extremely flexible. I am able to work remotely. Um, but unfortunately, it's, it's it's just the same old, same old. I've come back. I love it here. I am proud to be from Northern Ireland, proud to be from the north of Ireland. I am Northern Irish. I, I'm entitled to two passports. I have dual citizenship. And I think a lot of people of my generation and below are in, want to continue that.
4: See, I'm, it's not it's not I put it to you that it's not just and I get it, I hear you, about your generation. How old are you? I'm thirty five. Right. You see, I'm fifty, right? I'm 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 the same. So I, I could make more money across the water. Um I, I've I've had opportunities <laughs> to go across the water, but there is there's something really lovely about living here. And some it's, it's, and sometimes that is downplayed or downgraded. No matter where I've been in the world. It's always lovely to come home.
10: But Stephen, is that, is, is that the politics or is it the people? Because I would put that on the people. Because I've travelled the world with work. I've lived in different countries, different cities. I've had many people come here and visit. And they always say, you know what? For everything that happens in the press, in the news, in the political world, it is the people of this island, it's the people of this country.
4: But you can't, <laughs> to be fair to the politicians, the, the feeling, the feel-good factor of living here in Northern Ireland and just that we special... Ping that you get that brought you back to be here that's kept me here you you, you, you can't load that all on oh well, the people are great, but the politicians are 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 not you know politics and politicians are part of the people here
10: but, but see, I, I I do agree to your point Stephen, but i also you also have to think none of these politicians. We'd have a job if everything was rosy, and you—you've you, said it yourself on your pre, your program. That's some of unfair, the isn't it? It's unfair. Enjoy, so you think th- th- you,
5: you
4: think now, Ryan? You—you—you you, you think now, Ryan? For someone that that's gone into politics, and look, lots of them give me a hard time. Fair enough, no problem, right? <laughs> Whatever, part of the job, no problem, right? But you think that for 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 the vast majority of those decent politicians, and they genuinely want to go into politics. As a vocation, they genuinely want to go into politics to try to change things for the better for their community. People like you homogenize them and label them as they've got an ulterior motive or but for them, the country would be rosy. And it must be it must be incredibly depressing to be a decent politician and hear this day in, day out.
10: I'm sure it is, but it's also extremely well paid. You know, and I mean, you can't forget that. Nobody goes into a job and does it just for the love. Because I'm telling you, none of these politicians, I would 100% guarantee, and I'm sure your viewers would as well, have not struggled in the last three years whenever they've been off. They've been getting full pay or reduced pay, but they're still significant. They're earning significant amount of money when there are mothers, children, services, doctors, nurses that are struggling more than these politicians. So yes, not all of the politicians are, you know, um, are, are bad or, uh, you know... Let me put the the final question
4: to you a different way because I think it's interesting, right? If I flip your argument completely on its head, would Northern Ireland have more potential? Would this feel like a better place if we actually, if the default position was we supported the intent of our politicians? That yes, we challenge their decisions, of course you do in any democracy, but you get up in the morning and you think, in the vast majority of the cases, what we will say out loud is, these are decent people trying to do a good job. Would Northern Ireland actually get on better?
10: I'd say there's an element of that, Stephen. I think that's a pretty it's an interesting question. And I'll think about it the rest of the day, but I, 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 I don't know. And I think there's the, 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 the politicians that are in power, particularly the two main parties, I think hold so much power and so much influence on their communities. And it is the minority of people that do seem to drag down the majority of people. And well, I think I, I, still...
4: let me let me share this with you factual experience because I, I think this is interesting territory, right? It is a statement of fact, right? So the the, the Sinn Fein have been boycotting the Nolan Show for a number of years. Whatever, okay, that's up to them. As soon as they want back on, they'll be welcome back on, okay? But 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 here's the point: I've personally witnessed Sinn Fein being incredibly passionate. And driven. I've witnessed it, speaking to them, looking at how they were working behind the scenes, trying to get local issues sorted, trying to get local matters sorted for local people. I have watched the DUP do exactly the same. I've had personal calls, and I'll not go into the detail of it, I've had personal calls from the likes of Naomi Long the leader of the Alliance Party, about one citizen, one constituent within her party who she was fighting for, asking me you know, questions ar- ar- around what could be done for, for that person. Equally, you look at the SDLP, and the SDLP have done exactly the same on the ground. Look at how Jim Allister fights for individual people, and the Ulster Unionist Party have done it as well. So, in other words, all of the good that those parties are doing behind the scenes... People before profit. Look at how close they are to their community. They fight for individuals every day and it's never mentioned.
10: Yeah, and it's often undone. The good on the ground, when there is true community relations, true community improvements, services, support, whatever on the ground, is often undone by the the tribalism at the top. That's one of the biggest problems here. And I think for my generation... We are not concerned about green, white, and orange, red, white, and blue, or those in between. We just want good paid jobs, affordable housing, investments in infrastructure, investments in jobs, investments in our communities. We don't care about all of the tribalism. Leave that to the dinosaurs to do. Let the people on the ground that, as you said, the parties, the people in those parties that are fighting for good at a grassroots level in the communities, that's what we want. We don't want the tribalism at the top. And frankly that, 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 that is what's happening and that, that the is tribalism
4: to whatever extent it exists is fueled by the electorate.
10: I, 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 I disagree well, with they that
4: vote if they, if, if I, people didn't yeah. vote along tribal lines, to whatever extent they do or don't, it wouldn't exist I, at all.
10: I, I agree, but I don't actually agree with the, that the DUP represents all of the unionist community. I don't agree that Sinn Féin represent all of the nationalist community. And I think, you know, there are people out there like myself who are neither party, who want to vote for change, regardless of where, what, what community I grew up in. I don't believe in the tribalism. I don't believe in the red, white and green.
4: It's front page news today. I'm, I'm not questioning that it shouldn't be, but it's front page news today that the First Minister went to a football match.
10: Which is amazing, but why wasn't it done before? Like I, to me, to me, why is why is that sensational news? Why why are we not talking about that the that the pay increase for, for you know a public sector worker is only five percent, but yet we're able to send two point three something billion to Ukraine? Where, is it, where that to me is more important. If I if I weigh that up and I go, what is more important, Michelle O'Neill attending a football match, or my friends and family who work in the NHS not being paid enough and having to go to food banks? I'm going to say it's the latter. And I think that this is where we really, as a society, need to, to wise up to ourselves and say, what is more important here? Why, why is it important? Why is it important? What can we do? And I think that starts at the top. And unfortunately, until Northern Ireland-wise up to itself, when the, when the majority of people actually realise, you know what, we don't need to tolerate this, we can vote for change, that's when true change will happen. Because otherwise, we're still going to be stuck in a two-party state. Which is not going to benefit the majority of people here. Majority of people are so indifferent about politics now, myself included, that it's like oh, you don't be to me
4: like you're indifferent to politics.
10: I'm indifferent when it comes to should I actually get out and vote because my vote, my vote is so small for so the parties that I vote for. It's so small now. I think that's, that, you know, I've always been a passionate voter. From the time I got my, you know, my, my voting card that I could vote, I encouraged my friends. I got some of my friends in their 30s who last time had never voted before. I got them registered, got them out. And it's just where all, we all just sit and go, is, is it worth it? Is this, is this worth it anymore? And I think that's what we're seeing across the UK, across, kind of, across, the, kind of, across the rest of the South of Ireland, where you see young, talented people with, you know, bright eyes, wanting to make a life for themselves and leaving the country because frankly the opportunities just aren't here the opportunities aren't here well come
4: on you know they're, why, they're why, not, you, why are you talking this place down? The opportunities are absolute. What what opportunities are not here? Even I
10: have one of one of my friends. You've, graduated, you've just told I, me I, how I, I, you I, can
4: how you can work remotely now yeah. in a country where property prices are, are relatively lower. We are not you know uh, compare this place to the likes of London. We are not sitting in traffic for two hours going to work and two hours coming back. Where well, you talk about the atmosphere and the spirit of the people. Some of the some of the so there, there's there's incredible entrepreneur. Entrepreneurial ship, ship there's, in, there's, there's in, incredible in this awesome. country. So, what opportunities aren't here?
10: There's incredible. You can get a fine
4: education in this country as well.
10: Yeah, that, 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 that I paid for, that I'm still paying back. But that, what
4: opportunities you know, are not here, Ryan?
10: I'll give you. I'll give you. I'll, I'll give. I'll give you one example, Stephen. My friend, I have one that's a nurse, one that's a um, uh, just a recently qualified midwife last year, going into the to the same um, uh, industry, the same jobs, right. They were getting here starting on, what, $22,000, 24000 something like that, okay? They have both moved to Australia and are earning five times that, yeah. even with the increase in the cost of living. And yet on, on that salary, on that 22000 salary, okay, working 50, 60 hours a week, they are not able to qualify for a mortgage for the average house price in Northern Ireland, right? The average house price in Northern Ireland is, what, 175000 at the minute for a new bill, something like 220000 the average worker, the average person here working in retail, working in healthcare, cannot afford to buy a home. Why isn't that talked about as a problem? Yeah. I'm lucky. I earn a great salary. I, I pay enough taxes. I do everything. I, you know, I don't use the NHS because I can afford to go private. I do everything that I can in my power to stay here, to invest in local infrastructure, to invest in local, you know, everything that I can. But yet, I have friends and family who are having to leave this country that they want to stay in because they cannot afford okay. to live.
4: Ryan, well, you, you've been a, a, a very impactful caller today, good caller. So thank you for
10: taking uh, the phone her, to there's, us. There's just one thing I would ask. Why don't you encourage all of the politicians, all of these closed-door discussions that these, these political parties have with each other, whether it's in the city councils, whether it's in local borough councils, whether it's in Stormont, all of these closed-door conversations, why don't you challenge them to have it Open, I do listen.
4: For- they follow at me all the time for challenging them to have those type of conversations in public, but sure, um, th- th- that's all right, Rand. Thank you. I want to leave it there. Thank you very much indeed. 030, 30 80, 55, 55. You heard Sarah at the top of our program this morning, the mother, um, of James. James is 18, James um has cerebral palsy, and he is, and his mum are questioning why the Southern Trust have not, in their view, consulted them properly without taking the power away from James's wheelchair. Sarah's contacted us to come back on this morning. Good morning, Sarah. Morning, Stephen. Go ahead. Thanks for contacting us again.
1: Um, thanks for having me. No, there was just a lady on there uh, chatting about the possibility that maybe James losing his power was similar to her husband losing his driving licence, but I just wanted to reiterate that there is actually no legislation for a power chair um as it does not require a licence to drive. And the reason is probably because, you know, a car has the potential of driving up to, what, 90 miles an hour, depending on who's driving. James's power wheelchair goes about five miles an hour. Like, cars drive on motorways and, in, you know, on busy roads with other drivers and pedestrians. The, chair, and the
4: electric chair's heavy. There There, there are dangers yes. associated with an electrically powered wheelchair.
1: Absolutely, but... My son drives from the back door onto the school bus and from the school bus to his But if you're somewhere school, to have a
4: seizure, there would be danger associated with that if he was in that wheelchair, correct?
1: There's danger, but James is, is supervised at all times. There is a safety switch on the back of the chair. So if he was to have a seizure and there's someone around and it's usually, you know, a therapist, a teacher, you know, an escort, myself. We all know that there's a safety button on the back of James's chair that can be switched very easily if we see a potential danger. And
4: S- Sarah, the, the, the trust is saying that they won't breach the, the confidentiality a, a, a around James, your son, despite the fact that you're asking for it and presumably your son's asking for it too, uh, yeah. to, to be discussed. Um, we, we we put, as we promised we would, a range of questions to the Southern Trust and they've refused to answer them. And one of the main questions was, when they said our occupational therapy team works with each service user individually to assess and advise on their specific wheelchair needs, we asked the Trust, did they work with James as the service user, in this case, to assess and advise on their specific wheelchair needs? So... The Trust have refused to answer that question. Could you answer it? Did they, once again, I know you already have, did the Trust come out and consult with James about taking his electric away from his wheelchair affecting his life?
1: No, they didn't. They went to the school. Um, I got an email to let me know that they had made the decision to remove uh, the power from James's wheelchair I was in work at the time and briefly read over it, but I texted the OT straight away and said, look, I'm not happy about this. Please don't make a decision until you get chatting to me. And James came, uh, that was on a Friday evening, so obviously got chatting to no one over the weekend. And on the Monday, James came home from school and I met him off the bus so, as normal and he said, Mum, you need to drive me into the house. is So is it,
4: a factual, is is it a factual statement that the Southern Trust takes power away from the wheelchair of a disabled person without consulting that disabled person?
1: Well, in this case, that seems to be what has happened.
4: And there's a question, I think, a very fair question around how much consultation should there be um, before that happens. The trusts are very welcome if they want to talk broadly and not about individual cases to explain to us what their policy is around the treatment of and dealing with and consulting with disabled people and this question is not going away. Sarah, thank you. Good morning. Thank you for joining us today. Don't forget it's the Live night. the Live on BBC One at 10.40 tonight. Um, and on the BBC iPlayer thereafter, there were historic scenes at Windsor Park last night That's the Sinn Féin First Minister, Michelle O'Neill, attended her first ever Northern Ireland game. She was joined by her executive colleagues, the Deputy First Minister, Emma Little-Pingelli, the Communities Minister, Gordon Lyons, from the DUP. History was also made after the Republican politicians stood for the UK National Anthem at Windsor Park. They watched the women's national team draw 1-1 with Montenegro. Here's what O'Neill, uh, Michelle O'Deal and Emma Little-Pengelly said before the game.
1: I think it's important, that,
0: particularly for women in sport, that um, we all get behind them and actually support them. So I think tonight's going to be a fabulous night and I'm really pleased to be here. I think, look, we're all really, really supportive of our women in uh, Northern Ireland football. So it's really good that we're all here uh, this evening to support them. We hope they do really well. But, look, they've been fantastic ambassadors for Northern Ireland. I know that they'll continue to be so.
4: Previously in 2011, Sinn Féin's former sports minister, Carl Nahoulin, visited Windsor Park to watch a Northern Irish uh, men's team game. Uh, political commentator Alex Kane is with us today. Morning, Alex. Good morning Stephen. Good morning. The commentator and former Sinn election candidate Chris Donnelly. Good morning to you Chris. Good morning Stephen. Good morning, good morning. Look, I, I, I don't think anybody else is asking this question but welcome to the Nolan Show. Is this, because it's happened for the first time, is this, you know, front page big news that a politician's gone to a football match Alex? And is the question is the front page news why hasn't it happened before? And how symbolic? How big is this?
9: Well, it's one of those bizarre things, and partly because it's bizarre because it's Northern Ireland. Stephen, in one sense, it's not important at all, simply because this is what you do in in any government. You have, you have you have key figures in any government who turn up at events who do things. Maybe they're not always entirely comfortable, but they may, may not even have any interest in. But they do it because it's part of the optics. That's what was going on last night, Michelle. Only. I wasn't surprised that Simpsons stood for the, the National Anthem. We saw with Martin McGuinness uh, uh, shaking hands with me. We saw with Michelle O'Neill herself and the Speaker Alex Maskey last year when the King w- was here. They were talking to him very comfortable. I would have been sh- absolutely shocked, Stephen, if, if Michelle O'Neill and her colleagues had not stood for the national anthem yesterday but you know the really important thing is that you think it's now we're now into the 26th year the 26th year of the Good Friday agreement the fact that this is a front page story a top in headlines of year yes it's important in one sense but the bigger the much much bigger question i think is why has it taken us so long to get to the point where as i say a quarter of a century after a peace process something like this still is deemed worthy of, of being covered by everywhere, every news outlet is covering yeah. this story. and we're why? Yeah,
4: you know, and we're covering it this morning too. Uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not questioning that, but my brain is just clicking into Chris Donnelly, is, is there a, is is there a not a manipulation by these people, but is there a manipulation of how important it is? There might be some people saying, so what? Emma Little Pengelly, Michelle O'Neill went to a football match. So what?
2: Yeah, but I don't think there's many people out there really that don't get the significance statement. At the end of the day, our entire politics here, uh, for better or worse, is defined by identity matters. We know that. We know that that's why we have the Good Friday Agreement uh, made up in the way that it is. So the significance wasn't a football game. The significance, because of course, as you pointed out earlier, currently Cullen had gone Martin and McGuinness, of course, went to both Northern Ireland Republic matches and at Euro '16. I think he invited Arlene Foster to go to the Republic game with her, and she declined at the time. The significant thing about last night was the fact that the Sinn Féin uh, First Minister and uh, uh, her colleague, uh, Ashley Riley, you know, announced they were going. And I thought, once she announced they were going, I thought they would do that. They would, they would go, and they would, you know, what had happened before is they might arrive just after. Uh, the British National Anthem played, but they went, and I think that that was to send a message of consistent with her theme of first minister for all. Well, wow. uh, And, and we, we know it's significant, Stephen, because it's never been reciprocated. You know, in the north of Ireland, a unionist politician, as far as I know, certainly not a leading unionist politician, has never gone along. Uh, to uh, a, in an equivalent fixture to stand for a Ron Levine. Whatever about go, standing for it and what they might deem the foreign country, which is the south of Ireland, you, in the north, it has never happened. Picking, yet. I think that's the next step now. Well, well, Chris, picking
4: up on that theme of first minister for all, would it not be more significant, not if Michelle O'Neill goes to um, a women's football match or any football match, is that Would it not be a more significant question to ask if she's going to continue to go to commemorations for the IRA now that she is First Minister? Would that not be a more significant test as to whether she's a First Minister for all?
2: Well, it's interesting you say that, Stephen, because you're implying that her going to a Republican commemoration... Would somehow exclude her from being a first minister for all? Not I mean, implying anything, well,
4: but if there is significance, well, well, to, if there is significance well, to Michelle O'Neill going to a football match yeah. in her capacity as first minister, is there significance when we're asking about a first minister for all if she continues to attend commemorations for the IRA?
2: Well, she's attending a Northern Ireland football match, because that's significant to some people in this society. I'm a, I'm a Republican of Ireland season ticket holder, so if she's going to Republic matches, that would be representing people like me. There are people in the society who would be uh, quite viscerally anti-Republican, and they might put up that her going to Republican commemoration is somehow uh, contradictory to status of being First Minister. I would say the opposite, in fact. I mean, in her role as First Minister... I demand that she would be attending Republican commemorations because the First Minister should be doing that. Just like over the last 20 years, The First Minister, when I was a unionist, felt nothing about wearing a poppy and going to British commemorations. So I think what she's about doing, I fully expect to see her at Republican commemorations. But at the same time, what she's doing is saying, look, I'm a Republican. But at the same time, I respect that there's people out there who don't share my views. And I'm doing my damnedest to show them that I want to respect them by my words and my deeds. And last night was part of that. Alex?
9: Well, I I, I I take part of that point that that Chris is is making. But I think the bigger thing here, Stephen, is that it's not possible. Just given the background of knowledge, like given the background of the two parties, given our history, given about how we feel about each other, given the division we have over the constitutional future, given the divisions we have over the narrative of the past, I don't think it's possible. And it's not a personal criticism of, I, of either of the two right now. I don't think it's possible for Michelle O'Neill. To, to say with any particular credibility that, that she will be First Minister for All, in the same way that I don't think it's possible for Emma Pageli to say that she can be Deputy First Minister for All. What they can do is go through the process, go through the go through the civilities, try and say, look, if the two of us can be seen to make some sort of effort to work together, it doesn't mean we will agree on everything. And we know when they get to the executive team, when they have to divvy up the priorities and things like Casement Park and health and housing and education and so on. The real nitty-gritty politics will come back. I think what the whole thing about the, the first Deputy First Minister, which I actually think, and I don't know if Chris would agree with this, I think the only time that has actually worked, in the sense that you, you, you felt that something very significant that something very significant was happening with personal relations was Ian Paisley and Martin McGuinness. Well, give these two a chance, no, just a pointed, what, Within a year of that, call it that Chuckle Brothers, within a year of that relationship, the DUP had forced Paisley out of that post because it was clear that the party and unionism generally wasn't happy with the nature of the relationship between the two men. And I think that's the difficulty. We can't expect two people at the top to make everybody feel better or do things differently if at the bottom the rest of us still remain fundamentally divided.
2: Chris? I think there's a lot in that. I do think there's a lot. I think, first thing, the first one is a for all strap line. It's, it's, it's aspirational. It's aspirational. And it means that. Uh, Michelle O'Neill, by putting that out there, can be challenged constantly by likes of you, Stephen, saying, well, if you're saying you're that, well, then how can you go to a Republican commemoration?" But she's willing to do that because it's aspirational. Of course, of course, Alex is right to say, well, hold on, you know, she wants united. Other people out there don't want that. But I think a lot of people out there will say, well, if you're saying you want to be first, first of all, there's obviously limitations. You still want something different in terms of political configuration in the North. But if you want to show we are out here, you're, you're acknowledging that by words and deeds, then that, that is a nod that people, I think, people respect. The second thing is he's 100% right. The personal relationship between Paige and McGuinness has never been repeated. And if this new relationship was to move in that direction, I think a lot of people there would appreciate that. They want to see civility. They want to see a, a personal touch. Alex, and I think, to be fair to both, I think both have made a good start in that uh, regard.
4: Alex, while both positions have equal power, um. And look, this, this is an awkward question, but politics is, is, is it, 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 it's real and people take no prisoners. Michelle O'Neill and Emma Little-Pengelly, who's the more dominant politician? Who feels more dominant in the public? Who feels more sure-footed? Is, is one publicly weaker than the other? Or are they equal, not just in terms of the power that comes with their job, but in terms of their ability?
9: I, that's that's a fascinating question, Stephen. Actually, I hadn't given it a, a, a huge thought, but it is fascinating. I, th- I think Michelle O'Neill clearly looks more comfortable. That's partly because she has settled into the role. She already had served time with, with Arlene Foster briefly. She had served time with, with um, Paul Gibbon briefly. She's been there. She's, the optics have already been around her. The movement has been around her. She has got a status. The trouble with Emma, and again, like, it's not a personal criticism. I think the very fact that she knows deep down she doesn't have a mandate. She was gifted the seat. She was gifted the job. And you can see her, the body language. She, she looks a little bit uncomfortable, a little bit nervous. But you know something, Stephen,
2: the,
9: the one thing about these two women is I think if they get the chance, if they get the chance to bet this down, I think they could develop a relationship because whatever their personal backgrounds may be, and they do share some personal backgrounds in terms of family and things like that, I think there's a sense that there's a willingness there to work together. And if they can get that, because... It didn't work with Arlene Costa and Michelle O'Neill. It, it, oh. it didn't work with previous relationships other than McGuinness and, and Paisley. So a moment here, Steve, and like everything in Northern Ireland, it's about grasping the moment. They will never be, and, as Chris said, we're talking about aspirational things, but sometimes two people showing that they can actually work together, even with differences, can have an important and, impact on the and, rest of us and on politics.
4: And final question, let me ask it of you first, Chris. Do these two individuals in these two powerful positions, do they have significant autonomy from their political parties to say and do what they want to do as leaders of this country? Or does the party decide and they present the party message, both in terms of Sinn Féin? Um, and the DUP, how much autonomy does Michelle O'Neill have? How much autonomy does Emma Little-Pengelly have to take decisions in their own right?
2: I think like the last one, it's a very good question, Stephen, that you put to the, the Alex there. I think it's an evolving picture, Stephen. I think that Michelle has been there a bit longer in that leadership position. She's faced challenges. We know she does Michelle, little...
4: Can I ask you a different way and then I'll shut up? Does yes, Michelle O'Neill me. or Emma Little-Pengelly, do they have to get their speeches signed off? by the Sinn Féin and DUP press offices? Or can they say what they want as political leaders?
2: Well, I don't know in terms of what, what the mechanisms within the parties would be. I'd say that they would, just because they would have a level of trust and respect with their press teams, they would probably touch base with them. They wouldn't want to be shooting from the hip. They don't present as that those types of political figures. But they do, I would say, Michelle probably has, at this point, a degree of greater flexibility because she's been in the position a bit longer, she's perhaps more sure-footed in that regard. I think the DUP's internal difficulties mean that Emma's going to need probably a bit more time to be able to put her elbows out a bit more and and establish herself in that role.
4: Do you get the point, Alex, finally, finally, behind the question that these are the... the, the 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 high profile front people, they're not the leaders of their party, so therefore are the leaders of their party telling them what they what the, the, the amount of flexibility they have to talk about issues, or can these two high profile, powerful women speak from the heart?
9: I, I think in, in in the case of Michelle O'Neill, her job is much easier Stephen because Sinn Fein is clearly a much more united party. Uh, they they work, they're much more coordinated than I, I mean the uh, Chris will know this you know it, it, she doesn't just get up and make stuff up you know or just do it wing it mm-hmm. it's all worked through what she's going to say how it's going to be said, where and when she's going to say it. Emma little Pengeli's problem right now is that the party is divided and she knows that she knows what would be seen by her maybe as a normal reaction a normal handshake, a normal smile, a normal photo opportunity will be interpreted by people inside the DUP and in the TUV and in other elements of loyalism and unionism as oh look at that, this is another part of the surrender they did the deal, surrender, and now there's Emma who hasn't even got a mandate so she has to be extraordinarily careful everything she says, Michelle O'Neill goes in there, comfortable, confident, she's been been in the role for a while, she's comfortable in her party. She's liked by her party, and I I know this. Too. She's really liked by her party. Emma does not at this moment have all of those attributes, so that's why I said it's a. I think there's something there. There's something between them which I think probably could, if given the right time, merge into something very important. My my fear is that the she will not. Emma will not be given the time by by the party or by unionism generally to build up because there's a lot of unionism still unhappy. With the deal, and still unhappy for the reasons.
4: So, what are you predicting,
9: Mike? one well, I don't want to be too pessimistic. I, you know, you, you were talking to Sam earlier about the, you know, the, the what's happening in the DUP. It's quite clear there's no one going. I think you and I talked about this a couple of weeks. There's no one specifically going for Jeffrey Donaldson. You know, no one trying to undermine him and remove him right now. But I think it's quite clear. Listening to the response from people to the the humble petition in the past couple of days. When it comes to the point about how the union is secured and safeguarded and strengthened according to that command paper, there are things still to come. There's legislation still to come. There are new committees still to come. If those changes do not deliver and deliver quickly, and we're talking in a matter of months here, Stephen, I think the DEP could find itself in an extraordinarily
0: difficult situation.
4: Alex Kane, Chris Donnelly, thank you very much indeed. Morning to you both. Zero thirty thirty eighty fifty five fifty five. Jim's in Lisburn. Morning, Jim.
3: Oh, hi, Stephen. Um, I'm one. I'm one of those who is saying what you were saying earlier. So what? Big deal. A couple of people went to football match. There you go.
4: Well, it's not just a couple of people. It's it's the first and deputy first minister, obviously, and yeah, you have Michelle O'Neill standing just, to the national yeah, anthem, the British national anthem.
3: But it's terribly parochial terribly parochial it, it smacks of all the things that are wrong about this place we live in you know that 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 is making headlines and is the subject of an hour's discussion on your show an we did not discuss it on... for
4: an hour on uh, this show do well, be well, ridiculous
3: it, it, well it seems like it <laughs> well
4: yeah I think we discussed it for five minutes how's that become an hour
3: Oh, we, led a, we, led well, we led the show this morning with a. We led the show this morning. We led the show this
4: morning with a story about a, a man who is disabled, an electric yes, and being taken away from his wheelchair, and he says he was not consulted. That was our lead this morning.
3: And in the great scheme of things, where does that stand with a couple of people going to a football match? So I'm saying, so what?
4: You could argue that symbolism, you've seen over the years, how it's so important in Northern Ireland. This is about symbolism, this story, is it not?
3: And will it make one button of difference to that chap in his wheelchair? No, it won't. Will it make one button of difference to our health service, our education service?
4: No. Well, if politicians at the top of politics can get on with each other and develop, if, 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 I have no idea what the personal relationship is like, but if the personal relationship is good... Then that might affect decisions that they're able to take as two opposing parties.
3: Well, you know, glasses half full, glasses half empty start to come into all that, Stephen, you know.
4: Jim, thank you. <laughs> Theresa. Morning, Theresa. Hello, Stephen. How are you? Okay, thank Stephen, you. Stephen, again,
1: I don't understand what all the fuss is about. Emma Pengeli and Jeffrey Donaldson went to the rugby in Dublin on Saturday. The day stands for the Irish National Anthem. That number has been recorded. Yet there's a headline today that they went to Windsor Park. Yet the headlines in the news today, Stephen, is the collusion of killing a man that was GAA. That was an innocent man in sport. And that all you're talking about is Windsor Park and Stan, for whatever national nice anthem.
4: Teresa, thank you. Peter and Carrick-Fergus. Good morning, Peter. Hello, Peter.
5: Hello. Good morning. How's I'll put the cat among the pigeons here. And here we if go. She is, if she is the, uh, the... She is going to serve all the people. I'd love to see what the nicest people think about... Uh, say, for instance, the UDA, or UVF, after to come and do one of their commemorations, which we're not enough doing it. Because the same kind of people... The commemorations she goes through the same kind of people in the, in the Protestant's eyes, you know?
4: Well, what do you think the answer is to your question?
5: It would be no, but she wouldn't go, obviously. so. But it's the same kind of thing she's commemorating. You know, and both sides of the community, they were, they were soldiers, even though, they, you know, they weren't part of the British Army. But, I mean, to say, it's just, I don't think she should do it, because you look know, at the, the Speaker of, uh, of the Commons, and he made a thing about that the the Lord Mayor of London was giving into the, the Palestinians, and he was out of a job. Yet over here, you can go and commemorate people. He wasn't out of a job. Well, that was a down. Yeah.
4: yeah.
5: Yeah, well, it's the same thing. You know, so over here, you can do whatever you want, and it doesn't seem to offend
7: anybody.
4: Peter, thank you. Albert, morning, Albert.
7: Morning, Stephen. Um, it's just all hype and spin, isn't it? Look at us. We're right there in the community doing, you know basically doing this and doing that, going to the police and going to Windsor Park. We've had this all before. Uh, well, you're and saying it's
4: all hype and all spin, but there will be people within the, the, each of the communities f- with, with Michelle O'Neill and Adina Emma Little-Pengelly that won't like them standing together, and they're doing it. Now, the interesting well, thing for the DUP, of course, is here you have uh, the DUP's Emma Little-Pengelly um, standing beside Sinn Féin's Michelle O'Neill, has anybody seen a picture recently of Lord Nigel Dodd standing beside Sir Geoffrey Donaldson?
7: Well, the thing is, uh, uh, you know, Michelle O'Neill, what did the first thing she came out with when they went back in the office was about a united Ireland. She went down to the Late Late Show and she spouted about a united Ireland. So then sparked, she, talked about she gave her Gatesman opinion. She, she basically came out about a united Ireland And and then the same breath you're saying oh I'm working for all, and let me say this I've seen over the years that our unionist politicians be sucked in by Sinn Fein, David Trimble, and now you get and Ian Paisley, and now you get basically Jeffrey, all basically sucked in, and that hasn't done unionism anything. Over the twenty-six years since the Belfast Agreement, well, why are you saying what Sir Geoffrey Donson's been sucked in? Where's from, your
4: Where's your evidence for this?
7: Well, if you look at it, let look at the the Chuckle Brothers. You know, Paisley was fiercely sucked in. Yes, people say now that he just wanted the First Minister's position, and you see. See, uh, did, you see of, did you see the house? Did you see Albert? Did you see
4: the House of Commons chamber on Monday night when Northern Ireland was being discussed? It was virtually empty.
7: Yes, I empty because all they wanted was it's like the Prime Minister coming over about the Windsor Framework. Sure, it was all spin about the Windsor Framework that we've done this, we've changed this. Okay, McDonald's okay. Albert, thank Same you. Let me bring in again. Paul
2: in
4: Anderson's time. Morning, Paul.
0: Morning, Stephen. How are you?
4: Go ahead, sir. Thanks for calling.
0: Um, the, there you have Per Peter and Per Albert. There, uh, your caller earlier on, there ran who spoke very eloquently. That's the, what this guy is talking about. This guy ran here, just in living sound on your program. Your your last two callers are, and that I mean, look, no one cares that Michelle attended Windsor Park last night. It's a non-event. It's a non-event, as far as people are concerned on this road, anyway. So what? It's no big deal. I mean, since they've already met the Queen on multiple times, they have met the King. They went to the King's coronation. We don't have a problem with Michelle only attending Windsor Park last night. It's a non-issue.
4: Should it should it be a big story? Should it be a story to celebrate? Well, look,
0: Stephen, I would go back to I would go back to your previous caller there, Teresa. About the significant finding in relation to the murder of Sean Brown and the state involvement in that. But instead, we're speaking about Michelle O'Neill attending a football match at Windsor Park. A non story. A non story. I suppose there's probably some symbolism to it. But in, in, the, in the greater realm of, of, of issues, your caller Theresa earlier on was bang on the money. That's a story. That's a significant story. Do you
4: think we're in a? Do you think we're making progress in Northern Ireland, Paul, about just around that question of us living together harmoniously and and trying to improve the place for the next generation, the economy, the spirit of the place? What isn't isn't important?
0: Well, look, Stephen, I, I, I'm being upfront with you. I mean, I don't want the North as it as it currently stands to exist. I want the reunification of this country. But people have to you know people have to live. You know, you, you have issues that affect health, education, job security, all those things, good public services, they benefit everyone. So I mean everyone has to has to pull together to achieve those things. I mean that's that's the day to day the day to day issues. But ultimately I want Northern Ireland as it's known to cease to exist.
4: And you're entitled to that view and you're entitled course, yeah. to that political aspiration and who knows maybe it'll happen sooner or later who knows Paul hopefully hopefully Steve. let's see Alright. Paul, thank you very much indeed. Thank you for your call today. That's about it um, from us for the morning. We then turn to tonight, BBC One, 10.40. No rest for the wicked. I'll see you on the telly tonight. Hopefully you can join me. It'll also be available on the iPlayer. We can continue talking to each other um, on Twitter, at Stephen Nolan. It's a Twitter address. And if you want to send this programme, if you want to listen to The Nolan Show, not at nine o'clock, but the time suits you. We're available every day on BBC Sounds. Thanks for your company today. See you tonight. Take care.
0: Biggest show in the country. Listen again on BBC Sounds. Tweet at Stephen Nolan.
7: Stephen Nolan show!
2: In a world that doesn't pause, catching up isn't enough. The Financial Times keeps you one step ahead in your life and career. With breaking news, detailed analysis, and a deep understanding of the global economy.
6: Don't just keep
2: pace. Set the pace. Fearlessly Pink. The Financial Times. Read more at ft.com slash fearless.